Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara. And we are here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. So the religious landscape of America is changing. A lot of people have been saying it's changing, I think, since I was a kid. But numbers are now proving it to be true that the American landscape is changing and particularly within the religious majority. So younger generations are now no longer identifying as Christians in terms of the volume that they were once identifying as Christians. They're doing it more quietly, you're saying? Yes. Okay. They're doing it quietly. (laughs) Rude. Uh, Based on a 2020 survey, uh, 36% of people who are within the age category of 18 to 29 years old are now unaffiliated in terms of their religious identity compared to only 25% of people ages 30 to 49, 18% of people 50 to 64 say that they are unaffiliated and 14% of people 65 plus would say that they're unaffiliated in regards to their religious identity. So the younger you are, the more likely you are to be a, a quote unquote nun. Yes. So 36% for the youngest, 25% for the medium, 18% as you get a little bit older. And if you're ancient, then it's 14%. That's rude to say ancient. But the percent of adults who no longer identify as any kind of religious affiliation, let alone um, evangelical or Protestant Christian, is rising. The younger you are, the less likely you are to identify with any kind of religious group in general. Yeah, and there's actually more data to that that kind of gives even more color to it. We'll look at that in just a second. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So you're talking about this survey that was done in 2020 by who did that one? Was it Barna? Pew? One of the people that does surveys and stuff and research and things like that. The the younger you are, the less likely you are to be religiously affiliated. And there was this uh, other study that I just found out about um, yesterday, found out about yesterday um, from Pew Research. They found out that by 2050, 
Christians will likely be in the religious minority in America. So for all of America's history, Christians of some breed or stripe have been in the majority of the people that live here. Right. Um, and so that's part of the reason why people say this is a Christian nation. Just because, because just by sheer, the pure numbers. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's a Christian nation. numbers nations. alone, the majority of the people would say, yes, I am a Christian and however you want to, you know dissect that right yes they would identify as a christian yeah but what we're seeing is that less people are identifying that way and if the trend continues by 2050 it's likely that christians will no longer have a majority and they actually gave a couple different scenarios based on like you know you can't predict the future but just based on the current trends so basically um the number of Christians or those who identify as Christians has been declining and the, the drop off has been increasing um, with each year uh, with, with each, the passage of time. So the, the amount yeah. that we're losing increases mm-hmm. as time goes mm-hmm. on. It's not like a steady bleed. It's, it's kind of, there's a, there's a drop off. Well, and even the other study that we just referenced, I mean, the difference, uh, 36% of people from 18 to 29 versus 25%. Like that's, an 11% difference, which is rather large when you think of um, that kind of uh, loss of identification from generation to a generation. Right. So they gave kind of a best case scenario, which would be that if um, people start disaffiliating from Christianity at the same rate that they this year into the next years, and that would be... um, they actually believe that that's unlikely given the kind of the trajectory and the trend. But um, if that's the case and we kind of remain on our kind of current state of decline, the percentage of Americans who identify as Christian will decrease from 64% where it is now down to 54% by 2070. Uh, It seems more likely that the drop-off will continue to accelerate as it has been. Uh, But even, uh, even though people are still converting to Christianity, um, there are you no know, people with Christian families who are mm-hmm. raising Christian children. There are people who are coming to faith. Um, they are not outnumbering the people who are either kind of immigrating in who aren't Christian or who are disaffiliating uh, enough to offset that for it to be any kind of a, a, a positive growth. Okay. So we're not we're adding to our numbers, but we're losing not, more. Yeah, we're not proportionally. Adding, we're not adding enough to replace those that are. Um, no longer identifying as Christians. So this doesn't even include people who have never identified as Christians. This is specific numbers within Christianity in America. Right. Yeah. And so the trend seems to indicate uh, that we would maintain plurality, meaning that of all the religious groups, we would still be the biggest one, even if we're not the overall majority of what people identify as. Um, But even by the most positive uh, estimations and trajectories, uh, even that would start to slip as you get around to the turn of the next century into the 2100s, which that feels like it's forever from now, but it's not that far. I mean, we, we won't be around. I, I don't plan on being around. Uh, maybe you'll be around, but um, it's not that far away. Certainly our children will be around. They better be around. Goodness. Um, yeah, but all of this would indicate that um, the religious landscape of America is changing and there's been a lot of fear within the Christian community that this would happen and it's happening. Newsflash, it's it's happening. Yeah, It is happening and 
that then brings about a lot of questions, right? What do we need to change in terms of um, our approach to the way that we live our lives, our approach to evangelism within our own local communities? What does this mean for us as Christians? And of course, the Bible says we're not to live in fear. And so this shouldn't be something that brings about fear, but it should be something we are very aware of and understand something in our evangel- evangelistic approach, as well as our relational approach to people who are not the same in terms of their religious identity. How do we interact with people of a different faith? Yeah, so it by the time our children are grown, uh, by the even the most generous estimates, they will be for the first time... Uh, American Christians, I'm assuming they're going to be Christians. That's our hope. We're kind of working on that right now. But if they remain in the faith, uh, if they remain in the faith by the time they're our age in their 30s, they will be probably the first generation of Christians that is not in the majority and will be entering into this new pluralistic uh, religious landscape in America. And so it is a, a very a significant turning point in the history of the nation. And so there are significant questions to uh, be answered in that. And so if the next generation is moving away from Christianity, evangelical Protestant Christianity, uh, what does that mean for the way that we engage in the culture around us? And so like, how does this factor in to um, just all the things that we've been talking mm-hmm. about. We've kind of been on a religious liberty kick the last few weeks. That's true. Uh, we were talking about the Satanists. We were talking about a lot of other people and separation of church and state and all that kind of stuff. Um, how do you think... So if Christians are minority in America, how does that factor into those kinds of conversations and how we engage uh, the religious liberty question, all those kinds of things as we look forward? That's a really loaded question, and I wouldn't say that we have all of the answers, but this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately, and you had actually shared with me another study about, um, is it Gen Z or millennials that actually think it's um, ethically and morally wrong for you to evangelize because it's in some ways unloving for you to try and push your faith or share your faith on someone else. Yeah, that was actually a 2019 Barna study that revealed that almost half of millennials who are practicing Christians believe it is wrong for people to evangelize, uh, or, or as that would, they would say, to push your faith on someone else. And that number is likely to be even higher among Gen Z right. uh, than it is with millennials. I don't think they have quite as much data on that yet. It says, you know, Gen Z is coming into adulthood and starting to kind of define themselves as a generation in their views and things. But it's expected that it's going to be even much mm-hmm. higher for them. Probably a majority of them would have this view. Um and even though a majority of Christians still think on you know on the whole, if you look at the well, even the majority of millennials by a narrow margin, but the majority of Christians generally, they have this sense that it's part of their Christian duty to evangelize, mm-hmm. but they have like no idea how to do it, what's the best way to do it. And so you have like roughly half of millennials who say you shouldn't evangelize, and then you have like the other half of millennials like, yeah, you should, but most of us aren't really sure like 
how how we mm-hmm. should do that or what's the the right way to do that, the ethical way to do that, the effective way to do that. Um, so I guess there's kind of two questions that uh, come out of that. One, and I think I know the answer, your answer to this question, do mil- half of millennials have a point in their opinion? <laughs> and two, if not, uh, what do we think evangelism should look like, particularly in a pluralistic society where mm-hmm. um Christianity is not the majority, but even kind of the Christian, kind of like the trappings of the the Christian worldview, you might call it, aren't going to be in the majority either. Right. And opportunities of evangelism are going to increase within your local friend groups, within your local communities, and even within your own families in ways we've never quite seen before. Most people would probably say, like, my entire family is Christian. We are a Christian family. Everyone on my street is Christian. And that that common denominator is doesn't exist anymore. And we are going to have to learn how to evangelize because it is important. It is something we are called to do as Christians. And I understand the rub that millennials and Gen Z have, especially when you just think of the way that we understand culture is that postmodern way of thinking has absolutely entered into the church in a lot of various ways, as much as we want to believe it hasn't. Uh, But that idea that your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And like, we can all just live our happy little lives and continue to operate that way. So I see how that mentality has trickled down into the way that we view evangelism. And I also think that mentality has entered into evangelism because we have a history of evangelizing in such harsh ways, you know, with those like sandwich boards of repent or you're going to hell. Where are you going to go when you die? Like those just very (laughs) confrontational ways of coming to faith. And I can, again, I can understand why the next generation is like, we don't want to have anything to do with that. We actually think that is wrong overall. Yeah. And so there are tools that, you know, were prominent uh, in a generation, probably for us when we were younger, but certainly in the generation previous to us, whether it's, you know, evangelism explosion, mm-hmm. um, if for spiritual laws. That was kind the of one. Like I was like, the, there's, there's like a four like or the, five. Yeah. I remember like a a bracelet I made. It was beads and like each color stood for something. And when someone at school, of course, asked you, what does your bracelet mean? Because they were going to look at a bunch of colored beads and wonder what that meant. What is the deeper meaning behind your homemade arts and crafts bracelet? (laughs) I've just been dying to know. And that's, I mean, honestly, that's, I remember learning that in summer school, (laughs) summer school. I remember learning that in Sunday school and making the beads and each color. I can't even remember, but essentially I think it was similar to the four spiritual laws. I think it was five beads. Was it? Yeah, it was five different. I know red meant like Jesus died on the cross and then white meant he rose again, but there was like yellow and blue and I can't There was a black one, I think representing sin. Yes. So I think it started, heaven is a free gift. Here we and they go. said that man was created by God um, as to, to bear his image, but sin separated us from God. There was the, the blood of Jesus, mm-hmm. the death and resurrection, and then there was accepting 
Jesus, uh, his grace through faith. And I think that one was the green bead, by the way. Green um, light. You have the green light into the kingdom of God. Uh, but that was just one of those tools that existed before. And I think we're still trying to go back to those ideas and they don't quite work. I'm not sure if they worked for our generation. I do believe that they worked for previous generations. I do think the tools and methods and strategies of evangelizing in America, at one point we we had really good strategies and tools and we've just held on to those for a really long time and haven't pivoted much. And now things like that, like here, make a bracelet and someone's going to be just very curious. And then you have this wonderful, magical opportunity to share about Jesus with them. And then you guys can have, you know, the sinner's prayer together and delightful. Now that person is, is saved and in, in the kingdom of God. But I never experienced that working. I never had any kind of a moment like that with somebody. Certainly no one ever asked me about my bracelet and I did wear it. I, I went to Did school. you do it like when like when girls get their engagement ring? Did you like prominently like make sure that people no. saw it like that so they no. would ask? I honestly I You know was, what I'm talking about, right? I like do. every I, every photo's got like strategically got the ring placed yeah, in it. No, honestly, I was afraid of people asking me about it. So oh, I might yeah. have been hiding my bracelet. <laughs> you like flipped it around so it's flipped on the around, inside of your so wrist, no pull your sleeve down. Beads, but I was afraid of that kind of a conversation. And I was in elementary school, so maybe fourth, fifth grade. Yeah, I was certainly not ready to walk through each bead with anyone and then hopefully have some kind of a prayer with them at the end. Um, but again, that just goes back to say that we once had tools and resources that we were (laughs) learning and teaching. And I think a lot of those are outdated and we do need to change the way that we view evangelism. One of the kind of big themes that I've seen coming out of this particular topic is as we are entering into a more pluralistic society in terms of people's religious beliefs is now our ultimate goal our ultimate motive to convert people. Let's talk about that in just a moment. Yeah, so you bring up this thing that was often a part of evangelism training. And, you know, that's a tough, we can make fun of all of these different, um, you know, the beads and the uh, four spiritual laws with the little booklets and the tracks. Um, and even like the, the question like, where are you going to go when you die? Like culturally that can be kind of offensive in a kind of a, a culturally diverse situation. We can make fun of those things. We can say like, well, that's, that's not a great way to go about that. I think where the trouble is like at a time when those tools were at their height, like people were getting trained, like there mm-hmm. were classes, like it was systematized. And so people were yeah. at the very least feeling equipped in some sense. And at the very least they were going out and trying it. And even if like the effectiveness was, not very high it was better than nothing it was was doing something like some people were being you know introduced to jesus in that way and so now we're kind of like well we don't need those tools but then we don't but now we have we we have have no systems of of doing anything right um and i can't remember who said this quote but it's it's better to shine a light than to curse the darkness i think Mm -hmm. we're doing a lot of cursing the darkness Hmm. in this moment um but alongside um that um there is this kind of um sense in which 
Christians, in particular evangelical Christians, this is a distinctive of ours that we are we are about mission. That everything in your life is defined by mission, and that's something that that I believe. But it kind of the way that gets translated sometimes is that if you have a relationship with a non Christian, and you should have relationships with non Christians, um, that the purpose and the end goal of that relationship is that you would convert them, and so that um, everything about the the friendship you have with them, the relationship you have with them, the way that you um, interact with them, get to know them, all of that is um, a functional means by which you can try to see them come to faith in Jesus. And uh, I think people even are, are starting to question that, like I, as people maybe see us coming and uh, can start to feel used by us, like maybe uh they they're a potential you know another notch in our evangelistic bedpost uh that we can win them to jesus and then that's you know another point on the board for us yeah and that person becomes a project in a lot of ways they become someone you are strategically trying to make opportunities to talk about jesus um and if Every interaction you have with them is trying to uncover more. So that way you can figure out how to present the gospel in such a way that's going to lead to conversion. Um, I think there's a couple of issues with that. One, a person who has that view also has a high view of their control over someone's conversion or their ability to convert someone. And let's say that person doesn't come to saving faith in Christ, then you kind of just abandon the relationship or you slowly let it die and you no longer put the effort in to keep that relationship alive because you're not going to get a win on that one. And of course, people are not going to want to be projects. They're not going to want to enter into a relationship with you so that you can fulfill your end goal. I think it is loving to always have a desire to share the gospel with someone who doesn't know about Jesus. But that should not be the only driver within our relationships. Certainly you should prayerfully seek opportunities to talk about it. But honestly, you might even be friends for several years and the topic not come up because you're genuinely just trying to get to know somebody. And honestly, I think that's just part of human dignity and value is I am not coming to you and desiring a relationship with you so that I can achieve something in the end of this. My desire to be in relationship with you and learn about you, and even if it is someone who has a different religion, learn about that religion out of your love for that person, out of desiring to understand them, out of wanting to see the world through their their eyes. That is how you love others. And it is really the work of the Holy Spirit that brings about conversion. It's not our our work. Certainly, he uh, allows us to come alongside and to be part of that and to be a tool within that conversion process. But it is not it is not our job to convert anyone. And I know that's difficult because you've seen two drastic ends of evangelism. Right now, people are not evangelizing, right? Uh, And then you had the other end where all we were doing is that. And it was very apparent, like, do you know Jesus? Yes or no? Why not? 
do you know that you're a dirty, filthy sinner? Like, whoa, like, can you calm down? And I've seen, I actually saw that a lot on my secular college campuses. These people would just come up and start asking you these very personal questions quickly. And I was like, you didn't even ask me my name. Well, I was going to say, you keep calling me Tamara this whole time. So clearly <laughs> you haven't even taken enough time to invest in me that you can't even say my name right. That's always a quick, quick indicator for me. Everyone always calls me Tamara. And I'm like, yeah, you just haven't taken the time to make sure you got that right. For years, I have plenty of people in my life that still have known me for five, six years. And they still call me Tamara. At some point, I just give up correcting them and say, well, that just is a sign of how deep our relationship's going to be. It's a sign of our postmodern society <laughs> that they're defining their own they're reality. They're defining of their what own reality. They can just call me Tamara. Um, but, anyways, back to what we were talking about. People who their only intention is conversion. I, I think that's harmful. I think it's harmful for the faith. And I don't think it's actually sharing the love of Jesus. And something else that's very interesting is when you see Jesus give like his final command to his disciples, it was go into the world and make disciples of the nation, not go into the world and make converts. And there is a difference between discipleship and conversion. Discipleship begins arguably at conversion and then you you begin to walk alongside somebody and be in their life and see them grow in their faith and grow in their knowledge and love for the Lord. And then hopefully, you know, they can share that with others. But it's not just convert you by move along. Like I'm on to the next person that I'm here to convert. And I think as we enter into this pluralistic society relationship is going to matter a whole lot more than it did before it's interesting that you you bring up the word discipleship rather than converting people um i wonder if there's a measure to which if we really love people and, and we're not you know the, the reason why we evangelize is because there is a there's an urgency there is a desire there's a love for people that you want them to come to a saving faith in Jesus that you want them you know to spend eternity in heaven that um you want their lives to be transformed um but so often when we have a kind of a conversion transactional mentality to that mm-hmm. um yeah. we kind of dehumanize other people and i wonder if the discipleship process begins before the conversion right. moment. Like I even think about Jesus with the disciples uh, where he spent three years discipling them. Uh, at what point were they converted? I mean, I was, it kind of yeah. seems like it was a bit of a journey for them to get converted. Um, but it seemed like Jesus, like he was clear about what he was, who he was and and what he was here for. And, uh, he talked clearly about it, but even the people that were like not on board, like he was still embedded in relationship with mm-hmm. him, mm-hmm. with them. And I mean, even look at Judas. Yeah, I mean, he to the to the bitter end, he was sharing the same table with him, right? And he didn't seem to treat him any lesser than the other disciples, and, and you know, even up until the last moments, uh, even though he knew what was going to happen. Um. So maybe the discipleship process begins before conversion. I think it's something like it's tough to say that your goal in a relationship with a a non-Christian shouldn't include um, them 
converting to faith in Jesus. Like maybe that's just the evangelical in me where conversionism and mission is like a part of like the core tenets of like who we are. Uh, but well, it's not, you, but it's not the only yeah. goal. And like, di- like there's this broader framework of discipleship where maybe uh, your role in somebody's life is one to just dignify them with human relationship because they are someone who has value, who's created in the image of God. Um, but maybe to be a part of their, their pre conversion discipleship process, uh, which might be a bit of a journey, uh, even getting to that. You said two things and sorry for trying to cut you off multiple times. I just had ideas and wanted to share them. Hopefully they're still in my brain, but one, I think I see one falling out your ear right now. It is. It's falling out the right ear. Uh, one of them is that idea that maybe conversion isn't in just one single moment of time. I, I think there is, a moment or at least a a succession of moments. Right. But this idea that what is your rebirth date, right? Mm, Yeah. I I, don't subscribe to that necessarily. I mean, I mean, there There are are some people that have that. I don't think everyone has that. No. And growing up within the church, I often was like, what is my date? What is my date? You know, because you're supposed to like write it in the front cover of your Bible and you're supposed to remember that date forever and like celebrate it. And, I know people who do. They say, I think that was just to sell study Bibles. I mean, possibly, <laughs> but I know a lot of people that will remember their rebirth date and even celebrate in that in a significant way, like just being thankful for the former life they lived prior to Christ and after and, and all and that. I mean, and I nice, don't think best. It's not necessarily for everybody. Yeah. That's, I, mean, I don't thing. think I had a one day all of a sudden everything just completely transformed in my life. I grew up in church most of my life. And so I think it was more of a journey for me. It was more of a process of a kind of am on board and I'm not quite sure, but I also don't know a lot about this. And so it's just that journey and the Holy Spirit working within you and to desire to see someone finally converted is also missing the process of what the Holy Spirit is doing in someone's life and also what the Holy Spirit is doing in your own life as you are sharing your faith. There is some great work happening in your own heart and your own life as you share what Christ has done for you. And it might not necessarily be the sharing of the whole story of Jesus and making sure you say he rose again on the third day because that's significant that it was three days later. And all of those facts are certainly true and important, but it doesn't take away from you actually talking to somebody and being in relationship with them. If you don't make sure to tell them on the third day, he rose again. Uh, Certainly they should know he rose again, but you don't need to go through all of those fine details to make sure someone's truly converted. And, There is just great power in having authentic relationship with people. And I think that's the best opportunity to actually share your faith. It doesn't feel canned. It doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel even like self-righteous in any way. If there's opportunity to share in the midst of someone struggling, like, hey, here's the kind of hope that I have in Christ as I've gone through this or through that. That is authentic and that is the good news that people are drawn to rather than, do you know you're a sinner? Do you know that? 
<laughs> do you? Because you are and you are in need of a savior. It's like, well, yes, but that's not how you have to arrive at that information is by pointing out someone is a sinner. And I've often heard in a lot of our American communities, people don't believe they're sinners. And so that's a huge obstacle, you know, we're trying to overcome as we're talking about the gospel. If someone doesn't think they need good news, then like, how do you even start talking? You need to first prove to them that they need it. Um, and so then we just really come down pretty hard on people. And there is that kind of self-righteous talk that starts happening as you are this and you are that and you are this. And you need Jesus to come and save you so you're not damned to hell for the rest of your life. Versus actually talking about what Jesus can do, um, the way he can transform you, the plan that he has, the desires he has for you to dignify you, to value you, those things that he's already created within you, but also to transform everything about who you are. Yeah, I think we have uh, maybe a less than complex conception of what it means to be human in a lot of circles where there are many circles where it's like all we talk about is human depravity, that you were depraved in every aspect of who you are, that uh, there's no part of your life that is untouched by sin, and they only focus on that. And then you kind of look out and you see there's plenty of non-Christians who are like really good people, like better people than a lot of people well, sitting in the How do you define views. good? Yeah, well, like doing good you things. Yeah, I mean? Doing things that like people That's also it, a lot of your... times will do things that Jesus commanded, not because mm-hmm. Jesus commanded them, but mm-hmm. because there's an inherent goodness that is within humanity. And obviously there's no amount of good that you could do that would outweigh uh, the fact that you are perishing as a result of sin and that that, that ultimately is, is going to be an ultimate death uh, for you. Um, but I think, we undercut our our own credibility and we aren't able to hold those two things in tension um and we um we don't affirm the the inherent goodness of humanity um while pointing to the 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 problem of humanity in that we we are dying and the mm-hmm. reason why we are dying is because of our sin and the only way out of that is through the person of Jesus and he gives us life everlasting. And the proof of that life is the manner of life that we have after coming to faith in him and, and following him. And I think along those same lines, um, there's this phrase that uh, uh, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. And there's a lot of evangelistic people who say like, you always have to use words when you evangelize, mm-hmm. which is true. But it's kind of like a both and, like our life is our, our best apologetic. Hmm. Um, the measure to which we model who Jesus is, um, th- there's something, you know, there's a reason why like crowds of people who are like super messed up gathered around Jesus. It's because they're, he was attractive. The, the, his, the life he was living was attractive. The person he was, was it drew people in because there, there was such goodness to it. There was such life to it because he was living in step with the Holy Spirit. And so I think uh, a lot of times with, you know, again, with the trainings and tactics and things like that, um, may, maybe they would be more effective if, they, if we were, were more uh, faithful to mm. be committed to discipleship yeah, um, in conjunction with a very clear proclamation of exactly why it is that we do the things that we do 
in a way that's congruent with being a Jesus person. I think that's a really good point. Even a lot of Christians now probably are not being discipled well. And because of that, it's then hard for them to have conversations about their faith or figure out what is it really mean for me to evangelize. And then you have those that have the gift of evangelism, which I have seen people who have the gift of evangelism. I do not have that gift, but you look at somebody who does and you're like, is that the way that I'm supposed to be doing it? Just these random conversations with somebody and all of a, the next moment they're pouring their hearts out to me and we're praying like that has never happened a day in my life, but I've seen it happen for other people and I've heard their stories and I think the Lord does equip people with that gift. I mean, it is in scripture, there's that gift, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the way that all of us have to do it. I think the Bible is clear about stating we are supposed to share our faith. This is the one thing we're doing on this side of eternity that we're not going to be doing in heaven. All of the other things that you read about in scripture in terms of the Christian life, we will be living those things out in some version in heaven. But evangelism is the only thing we are doing on this side of eternity that we won't be doing on the other side of eternity. And that is important. It's important for us to not throw it aside because we're uncomfortable, because of the way that our culture views faith. But it means we do need to change in light of the changes happening with their culture. And the best way that I have personally seen opportunities to share about my faith is within relationships. And oftentimes it comes when trust is built, when respect is built, when that person knows I am here for them regardless. Like, I don't care what you believe. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you do. I am here for you and I love you. And I I will continue to have that door of communication. And then they start to share deeper things. And that's when there's that opportunity to begin to share about my faith. And it's not even like, oh, here's the moment. Here's the time to strike. Here's what I've been waiting for for years and years. But it becomes just such a natural conversation because Christ has transformed me. He's transformed who I am and my view on certain situations has changed. And my hope genuinely in the middle of some really dark times is Christ and Christ alone. Like I don't know where else to go other than him. And so when a friend is reaching out and needs to talk to me, that naturally just comes out. And I don't get it right most of the time, but sometimes it's like, yeah, how can I talk about anything else in this moment as you're reaching out to me? And that is not a strategy that I've employed. I think it's more birthed out of a trusting, loving relationship that has already been built. And we see that often in scripture. We see relationships in scripture. Jesus had relationships with his disciples. And like you had talked about, it was likely a a long journey for them before they really were converted. I mean, it seems like they didn't really convert until he rose from the dead. How many times they didn't did actually he... really believe until they didn't uh, yeah. even understand the message until right. he rose from the dead. Like, oh, now did we he get say, it. How do what? Have you not got it yet? Do you not understand who I am yet? Who do like, you no, say that I yeah. am? Yeah. Who do you think that I am? And they kind of were like, yeah, we know who you are. Not really. And then 
after he we died, we know who you are. You're the guy who gives us fish and bread and says really confusing stuff. And we like hanging <laughs> who talks out with to you. us in stories, but yeah. you're still really cool. Yeah, it's it's a hard conversation, especially in our culture. Maybe evangelism was a whole lot easier before, but I think that might have been because you had so many people that started from Christian morals and ethics as a a common denominator. Well, and, and also people there believed was... in heaven. They believed in hell. Like there were a lot of shared beliefs, even if they weren't necessarily identifying as Christians. A lot of people had shared beliefs. And also there was a certain amount of social cachet in being a Christian in America. So if you weren't a Christian, um, it it's like it's a net win to convert. I'm not saying that those conversions weren't weren't genuine or anything like that but it's like it's a it's a pretty easy sell when like here's the message of jesus and also there's this kind of social structure around this that um that it's it's looked upon well to be a christian man or a christian woman in this society we no longer have that social cachet and so uh and a lot of times we we have a kind of a a social lack of trust mm, distrust right. in christians particularly for you know things that we've talked about in previous podcasts like you know christian nationalism kind of a militancy um a lack of concern for issues of mercy the poor uh, those kinds of things that are you know whether that, that's you or i individually as followers of jesus as a voting block uh and the rhetoric that kind of comes out of that that's our reputation so it's in a lot of ways a social step down which means we have our work cut out for us in in the apologetic of of our lives uh, that shows th- the attractiveness of Jesus that transcends what you're going to lose in kind of like a social sphere. And that shift alone is probably one of the largest reason why Christians are less likely to evangelize. Because as soon as you have someone who's of a different faith or who affiliates with no faith at all hears that you're a Christian, they automatically have um, a certain view of who you are now. And they view you in that light, which is why it's all the more important to develop genuine relationships with people. Again, not just for the sake of one day, all of this is going to matter and you're going to be converted, but mixed within that hope that your friend who you love and care about will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, because why would you want them not to? But that not being the reason the relationship has started and that not being a reason why it ends if it doesn't work out the way that you wanted it to in terms of their conversion. But genuine relationships are going to matter a whole lot more than I think they ever did before when it comes to evangelizing. And I've been listening to this podcast called Bold Love, which is just very interesting how, oh goodness, I can't even remember his name. Uh, Bob Roberts? Bob Roberts, yes. Junior. Junior, yeah. There's the JR on the end. He is surrounds himself with people of different religions and tries to actually equip and create community for there to be communication and diversity among religions for the betterment of society as a whole instead of all the religions like being at odds and wanting to convert one another all of the time his mission and his ministry is actually to just enter into relationship to create paths of communication and bridges between religions 
So there's not so much hostility happening in the world. And all of the time, not going to lie, his podcast sometimes makes me very uncomfortable because he talks about his coworkers who are of a vast like diversity of religious people. And he says, my goal is not to convert them. That's not my goal. Yeah. It's, and it's like uh, there's like the ecumenism of old, which like didn't work, where it's like mm-hmm. we're all going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Um, also, by the way, it's interesting to, to listen to this guy because he's from Texas. And yeah. if you look at his headshot and you listen to his voice, he sound like he he exudes kind of like a god in guns kind of persona. Like just just if you just looking at him on the face, but then you listen to him talk, and he's he's not that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there I have that same uncomfortability uh, in that I like the whole like ecumenical movement was a failure because like the the religions are fundamentally different mm-hmm. that and it if there is no effort on on our part as christians to reveal the truth of who jesus is then it's kind of like what are we doing you know what i mean mm-hmm. like making nice with people so i think to a certain extent i i i, I do feel uncomfortable with that um but at the, at the same time there is such a deficit of bridges that it right. requires a lot of work to to build those up. Well, and when we change our mentality of not everyone's a project of to like be I don't, converted. Yeah, I don't have to convert you today. I don't have to I'd convert like you to, today. But it, but there's there's more at play here. It's more of like a like evangelism uh, is part and parcel of kingdom building, but kingdom building is far more than that. It's about being. Sermon on the Mount kind of people right. and that are kind to people, that love people, that seek the common good regardless of what their faith is. And yes, an essential component of that is that I would love for you to join me in this kingdom building project that is empowered only by Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yes. I had a thought and it completely vanished, but I agree with you 100%. What is interesting in this whole conversation is how do we do it now in light of the culture shift? And I'm not sure we exactly have the answer. There might be some way to actually equip believers and churches to See, if we feel were real evangelical influencers right now, we'd say, and for a one-time gift. We have a course. We have a course. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no course, but... I just think maybe there is something out there that can be, this sounds like so business model, but like something that can be scalable to like teach everyone and actually equip them. But maybe it just comes down to emphasizing discipleship in the lives of the church itself and making that something important and, and teaching people within the church, like discipleship, for your own soul is good, but also discipleship for everyone around you is good. And so everyone is playing a part in someone's discipleship process and journey. And when you start to become more comfortable with that and start to understand what that looks like, then maybe this conversation about evangelism becomes simpler and it doesn't seem so foreign to everything else we're doing with our lives. Like now today I'm going to go on a Saturday and stand on a corner with a sandwich board. Like I would never do that for anything else in my life. But 
for might evangelism. Be some I would do it for. Let me do it. Yeah, I'm sure you would. But <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, oftentimes the the normal strategies for evangelism feel very foreign to us in in the very little actions of them, like going through the the bracelet with the bead thing. That just was like I would never talk to somebody like mm, this. And yeah. So how do we do it to where it's something it might be uncomfortable just because you're sharing your faith and you might fear rejection and you might fear even being made fun of or not having a relationship with that friend once they know you're a Christian. And so tapping into those things are very different than here's your bracelet. Here's your sign. You're trained. Now do it. Yeah. Yeah. Now go out and do it. But why are you afraid? Like, why are you hesitant to share your faith? What is it about this relationship? And then also making it important in your own faith to know if this person is not saved, like what does that mean for them? Not necessarily like that means they're going to hell, but even now on this side of eternity, what's that, what does that mean for them? Like what Christ transforms lives and is it not true that you want your friend's life to be transformed? So just kind of thinking through what does our own faith really mean? What does our own discipleship really mean? And how do we then turn that out towards non-believers? Yeah, I think probably to sum it up, I think we have decoupled evangelism from discipleship and made those two things distinct, where maybe our answer lies not in better evangelistic tactics, but by integrating that back into the discipleship process. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Hi friend, are you stressed, maybe even worried about so many needs around you that you've forgotten you are worth taking care of too? Well, I'm Bonnie Gray, the host of Breathe, the Stressless Podcast. I want to invite you to join me as I share practical tips based on science, inspired by God's Word, to help you spark joy and restore God's peace and love to your soul. Subscribe now and go to lifeaudio.com.